We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible known as the Gospels. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to be in chapter 21 of the Gospel, the book of Luke. And as always, I encourage you to be a skeptic today. Don't believe anything that I say just because I say it. Get into the word of God, the Bible, for yourself. Read it, see what it says, and challenge yourself with the truth. In our last study, Jesus wrapped up an incredible teaching that's known as the Olivet Discourse. It took us five weeks to get through it, but it was worth it because what Jesus shares in this message called the Olivet Discourse is so compelling. And if you missed any of those studies, I encourage you to listen online and catch up. And last week, Jesus encouraged you and I by explaining that success in life is not about results. It's about faithfulness. It's about being faithful with whatever it is that God has given you in life. This week, we're going to pick up right after Jesus has finished teaching the Olivet Discourse. It's the final week of his life before his death in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem for a feast known as Passover, which we will talk more about. And he's actually just a couple of days from being arrested and crucified on the cross. So let's pick things up in Luke 21, verse 37. It says, and in the daytime, that just means during the days of the week before Jesus' death, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. Verse 38, then early in the morning, underline early in the morning, all the people came to see him in the temple to hear him. And I had you underline that because I want us to remember that the opportunity to hear from Jesus is always worth the effort. The opportunity to hear from Jesus is always worth the effort. I probably don't need to tell you that. You're here because even though it's snowing, and I appreciate that, the opportunity to hear from Jesus is always worth it, even if it means being up early in the morning. Even if you would say, man, my life is so full, I have no time, and you're giving up sleep so that you can have some time with Jesus every day, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. In Matthew's gospel, we get this additional detail. I put it on your outlines. In Matthew, it says, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, so when he's finished the Olivet Discourse, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, in two days' time, is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is important because we're going to see over and over again, Jesus is the one who is in control of every detail of his death and all the events leading up to it. Jesus is not going to be surprised when he's arrested or surprised when he's betrayed because he was the one who was in control. And here he is predicting specifically what's going to unfold in the next 48 hours. He's saying, I'm going to be crucified within the next 48 hours. And we're going to find it's even more amazing because Judas and the religious leaders didn't want to. They weren't planning on arresting Jesus during the feast of Passover. They wanted to wait until after Passover, and we'll find out why in a minute. As a side note, the Olivet Discourse that's recorded in Luke 21 will be the last public teaching of Jesus' ministry. He's done. He's just going to speak to his disciples from here on out. We're just going to keep rolling into chapter 22. It says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Passover was actually a single day. It was a holiday that was one day, but it was immediately followed by the feast of unleavened bread, which was almost like a a week-long celebration and festivities. And so people would use either name. If they were saying, are you going to celebrate Passover, they could be talking about the day or the week. And if they said, are you celebrating the feast of unleavened bread, they could be referring to either because it all really rolled together. And these holidays and feasts were an annual celebration that the Jews were commanded by God to celebrate. So God himself said, I want you guys to keep Passover. I want you guys to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what God said is every able-bodied Jewish male, in other words, if you had legs that worked and you could walk and get yourself to Jerusalem, you were required to get yourself to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifice of a lamb, which would then be eaten by the family that brought it as the Passover meal, which is called the Passover cedar in Hebrew. 
The feast was to help Israel remember how the Lord had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. You might remember they spent 400 years working under the pharaohs as their slaves before the Lord set them free. You might also recall the the famous series of plagues that the Lord sent on Egypt through Moses. And the final plague, the most devastating plague, was the angel of death killing the firstborn son in every home in Egypt. However, God had told Israel, listen, your homes are not going to be affected if, if you will take the blood of a lamb and paint it on your doorpost. And when you study it up, you find that it would have made the shape of a cross. And the Lord said, if you do that, if your door is marked by the blood of a lamb, the angel of death will pass over your home. Hence the name of the celebration, Passover. And as you might have guessed, it was a symbol looking ahead to the time that we're reading about right now when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would lay down his life and his blood would save us not just from the angel of death for one person in our home, but the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, would save us from eternal death, every single one of us. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist, do you remember what John cries out when he sees Jesus? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Throughout the Bible, leaven or yeast as we would call it, is used as a symbol for sin. Every time leaven shows up in the Bible, it's a symbol of sin. And right before Israel was about to be set free from Egypt and God is telling them, listen, get yourselves ready because you're about to be set free. Pack up your stuff, get ready to go. He told them to bake bread for themselves without leaven, without yeast called unleavened bread. So instead of rising up, it pretty much stays flat. This was because Egypt in this whole story is a symbol of the world. It's a picture of the world that belongs to Satan, that is full of sin, that leads to death. And just as God brought Israel out of Egypt, he wants to bring us out of the world. Even though we still live here geographically, he wants to set us free from being controlled by the enemy, Satan, who rules this world. And he wants to set us free from the power of sin. And in fact, every Passover, families would play a little game where they would get rid of any leaven that was in their home, all of it, and get it all out of their house. And it was a picture of getting the sin out of your life and the importance of doing that, except for one little bit that they would hide, about one spoonful somewhere in the house, and they would play a game, and the children would have to try and see who was the first to find the last little bit of leaven. And the Jews still play a variation of this game to this day. So I mention all this to let you know at every Passover meal, at every Passover cedar, you would have the Passover lamb that would be eaten by everyone there. You would have unleavened bread and you would have wine, specifically four cups of wine, which we're going to talk about towards the end of the message. Verse 2, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, how they might kill Jesus. Matthew's gospel tells us the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So all you need to understand from this is it was basically all the political leaders and all the religious leaders got together and were all conspiring to kill Jesus. This wasn't one rogue guy. All the religious leaders, all the political leaders were in on it. The position of high priest used to be handed down from father to son through a tribal line that was known as the Levites. They were a tribe among the Jews. That's the way God said it was to be done. But when the Romans conquered Israel, they began to say, well, okay, we'll let you keep your ruling religious leaders. We'll let you do that. But we're going to appoint the high priest because they wanted to make sure that they had a guy who was going to be a political puppet for them. He was going to be a guy who the Jews could point at and say, well, see, we still have some control over ourselves. We have our own high priest over us. But he was going to be appointed by Rome because they wanted to make sure that whoever was in such an influential position was pro-Rome, not somebody who was going to make problems for them. And so when this all began to unfold, Annas became the first high priest appointed by Rome. And Annas begins to get too old to hold on to the position, but he doesn't want to risk Rome appointing just anybody because there's a problem. You see, he has four sons who are getting rich off of doing something in the temple. His four sons are the guys making the most money from selling sacrifices and changing money in the courtyard of 
the temple. They were the guys running that whole racket, Annas's four sons. And so what Annas does is he takes one of his other sons, a fifth son, and he gets Rome to appoint him as the next high priest. And that son is Caiaphas. Well, what did Jesus do when he went into the temple with the money changers and those who were extorting the people by selling overpriced sacrifices? Jesus turned over their tables, trashed the place, told them to get out. And so Caiaphas, Annas, and their whole family, they hate Jesus because not only is he getting the people on his side and and speaking out against their authority, he's messing with their money-making operation. And so they're determined one way or another, Jesus has got to go. So they're trying to figure out a smart way to kill Jesus. Why smart? Well, because it says next, for they feared the people. They feared the people. Mark makes it a little bit clearer. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So picture the scene, there's Jerusalem, but every able-bodied Jewish male has come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. A lot of them have brought their whole families with them. We know from the number of lambs that were sacrificed that is recorded in history by a historian named Josephus, there would have been at least two and a half million people in the city of Jerusalem. And if you know anything about Jerusalem and, and the old city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's not that big at this time. There's two and a half million people there at least. There's a whole bunch of people there from Galilee up in the north where Jesus is from, where Jesus still enjoys quite a bit of popularity. So if they arrest Jesus out in the street in the middle of the day, in the middle of Passover, there could be a riot at any moment. The Galileans could say, you can't arrest Jesus. Jesus is a great guy. You can't do that. And if there's a riot, there's going to be a problem. Because what Rome said is, okay, you can have your religious leaders, you can have your high priest, you can keep the whole charade going, but listen, high priest, religious leaders, you better keep the people under control. Because we're Rome. We don't do freedom of speech. We don't do public demonstration. You know what Rome does? If there's a riot or a public demonstration, they come in and they kill a bunch of people. Because the only way you keep that much of the world conquered and under control is by brutally suppressing even the faintest hint of an uprising. And so these religious leaders know if we arrest Jesus, there's gonna be a riot that's gonna bring in the Romans, bunch of people are gonna die, and even worse, they might take away some of our authority and clamp down on us. So they're trying to figure out, how are we going to make this work? So the religious leaders agree that the best time to arrest Jesus will be after the Passover. When everyone has left Jerusalem, there'll be a more opportune time to arrest Jesus then. However, that's not going to be the way this plays out. Why? Because Jesus is in total control of everything. Verse 3 Disturbing verse, then Satan entered Judas. You know, it's extremely rare, but what's heavy about this is it's saying that Satan himself personally possesses Judas in this moment. It'll never cease to disturb me how close Judas was to the truth. When I say the truth, I'm talking about the literal embodiment of the truth. Jesus, who said, I am the truth. Judas spends three years around Jesus, and he misses it. He misses it. And that's disturbing, and it's a disturbing reminder for us to never think that we're saved by proximity. In other words, don't think, oh, I know that I'm saved because I go to church, and I hang out around a bunch of people who love Jesus, and so if I'm hanging out around them, you know, I'm sure that However this thing plays out, I'll end up with them in heaven. We don't go to church because we think it's proximity that saves us. We go to church because we have a relationship with God. We want a stronger relationship with God. But every person has to have their own relationship with God. And the heaviness of this is underscored by the fact that Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the 12. And he misses it. He's not saved. And we'll find that Satan takes control of Judas personally on two occasions. One is right here, right before Judas goes to arrange for the betrayal of Jesus. And the other is at the Last Supper, right before Jesus tells him, Judas, go and do it. Go betray me. Go do what you came to do. 
And then it says his surname was Iscariot. Iscariot just means man of Kerioth. Kerioth was a small town in Judea, that's southern Israel, about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. This means that Judas was the only one of the 12 disciples who wasn't from northern Israel. He wasn't from Galilee. He was from southern Israel, Judea. Now those who were from Galilee were really known as like the rednecks, the blue collar people of Israel. Uneducated, uh, work with their hands, whereas those from the south were more erudite. They were more educated. They were more sophisticated. And so when Judas comes into the 12 disciples, that's the reason they put him in charge of the finances of the ministry. He manages all the money that people give to Jesus to support his ministry. Judas does it because he's the most educated among all of them. He's the most sophisticated among all of them. If you were picking someone to betray Jesus, none of the other disciples would have ever picked Judas. They kind of felt like he's elite. He's, a, he's another level above us here. They had no idea what Judas was planning at this time. We read on, it says, he was numbered among the 12. So he went his way, verse four, and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. The captains are just the temple guard. They were men from the tribe of Levi who were the, the temple police, basically. Verse five, and they, the religious leaders, were glad and agreed to give him money. Matthew tells us that the price they agreed upon was 30 pieces of silver, which according to Exodus 21:32, was the price of a slave. The price of a slave, which is fitting because Jesus himself said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus made himself the servant of all, serving all through his death and his life. And there's many biblical scholars who point out that the 30 pieces of silver most likely came from the money pouch of a chief priest. Not the high priest, but one of the chief priests. For you see, during the Passover, the chief priests would have these little money pockets with 30 pieces of silver in them. And they would walk around the temple mount trying to find someone who couldn't afford a sacrificial lamb. And if you couldn't afford a lamb, you would get to buy a dove. That's actually what Jesus' parents bought when he was a child. But they would find someone who couldn't afford a lamb. And then they would make a big show about taking some money out and saying, the Lord has provided for you. And everyone would go, oh, you're so generous. You're such an amazing, wonderful person. And so most likely, the money that paid for the betrayal and life of Jesus was money that was used to buy the sacrificial lambs on the Temple Mount during Passover. Verse six, so he, Judas, promised and sought, that means he began to seek opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus to them, and then underline, in the absence of the multitude, in the absence of the multitude, when the crowd was away. I had you underline that just to underscore the point so that you would see plainly that the religious leaders in Judas had a plan to arrest Jesus after Passover, when all the people were gone, when the crowd was no longer around. It's going to end up happening right in the middle of Passover because Jesus is going to tell Judas, go do it, what you do, do it quickly because Jesus was in total control and command of the situation. So make a note of this. Despite the plans of Judas and the religious leaders, Jesus will control the timing of his arrest and death. Despite the plans of Judas and the religious leaders, Jesus will control the timing of his arrest and death. And this is just so important. It's so important because you cannot think that the cross and the death of Jesus was a tragedy. It was a triumph. He was in control of the whole thing. It was planned before he ever came to the earth in any form. The plan was in place. He's in command of everything. So why does Judas betray Jesus? If you're not at least curious, then you're not paying attention. Why does Judas betray Jesus? I've heard several theories. There are those who will say, well, Judas really did believe Jesus was the Messiah, but he was expecting the conquering king Messiah, somebody who's gonna crush the Roman occupiers and set Israel free, and he was getting tired of waiting around for Jesus to get to it, so what he's doing is he's trying to sort of force Jesus' hand. He's creating a confrontation where these religious leaders are going to come and try and arrest Jesus, and that's going to force Jesus to rise up into the superhero mode and just vanquish all his enemies and take control. So there's that theory. The other theory that's really popular is to say that 
Judas started out as a sincere follower of Jesus, but he became disillusioned and jaded over time when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to be a conquering king, Messiah. He was going to be a suffering servant, and he gets tired of waiting for Jesus to rise up, and he eventually loses hope. And that's the reason that he ultimately sells Jesus out, is he's just lost hope. Personally, I don't hold either of those views. You can listen to this and then discern for yourself what you think is most likely. We know from scripture that Judas was made treasurer over the money of Jesus's ministry. And we know from scripture that he was stealing from that money, apparently throughout the entire ministry of Jesus. I think it's clear that Judas never had any spiritual interest in Jesus because there's no recorded quote or action attributed to Judas anywhere in the Gospels that would indicate otherwise. Rather, he's attracted to Jesus because he expected him to become a powerful religious and political leader. He saw the great potential for power and wealth and prestige by getting close to Jesus and that's why he tags along. I'm of the opinion that stealing from Jesus as you live with him over a period of three years, as you hear the teachings, as you see the miracles, the dead raised, continuing to steal from Jesus, I believe is evidence that Judas was never saved. And in order to keep stealing from Jesus, Judas would have had to turn down the conviction of God on his spirit over and over and over again until he finally reached the point where he couldn't even hear from God at all anymore. I believe that moment is what the Bible calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where you reject God's work in your life, God's conviction on your life, over and over so many times, so consistently, that you reach the point where God finally says, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll leave you alone. And you reach the point where you can no longer be saved, and the Bible's clear, you can reach the point of not being able to be saved long before you die. It's not only when you die that your opportunity runs out. You can reject God so intensely and consistently as he tries to draw you to him that God eventually says, fine, I'll stop trying to draw you. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I believe that's what happened to Judas. So make a note of this, the most likely explanation for Judas' betrayal of Jesus is that he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He rejected the Holy Spirit to the point where he couldn't hear it anymore, like tuning out a frequency on the audio spectrum. There's only two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, and when you reject the kingdom of God, you are, by default, inviting the kingdom of Satan into your life. The devil doesn't force his way into the life of Judas. Judas invited him in. Judas opened the door. And every time I mention the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I feel compelled to say this, that if you're here, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, and you know that God is calling you to give your life to him, and you've never done that, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, respond to God right now and say yes before it's too late. Because you don't know that there's another opportunity coming. You don't know that you have next week. And I'm not even talking that you might die in a car crash, which could happen. You don't know how close you are to being at the point where God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll leave you alone. And you won't even feel him drawing you anymore. If that's you, man, please say yes today. Don't mess around with this. It's too important. Now there are those who will say, well, Judas proves predestination is true. He had no choice because God needed to have a betrayer and God can do whatever he wants with anybody. So he made Judas predestined to betray Jesus, be possessed by Satan and go to hell. And to that person I would say, well, just because the Lord knows what we're gonna do in the future, what decisions we're gonna make, it doesn't remove our free will. Him knowing what we're going to choose doesn't remove our ability to choose. It just means he knows what we're gonna choose. And in all likelihood, the Trinity got together before Jesus ever came to earth, before the earth even existed, and they planned out together Jesus' entire time on earth. Not the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I've got a proposal, Jesus goes and dies. But the Trinity together in perfect unity, planning this all before the foundation of the earth was laid. Because we need to remember and understand, it's not like the Trinity got together, planned the earth, Jesus creates everything, and they go, oh no, who could have seen this coming? 
man's sins. They weren't taken by surprise when that happened. To me, it's one of the most astounding things about the cross and the death of Jesus is that he knew that was gonna happen even as he's creating us. He knows. He knows we're gonna reject him. He knows we're gonna sin. He knows it's gonna cost him his life. And he still creates us anyway. He still does it. It's astounding. Judas's actions prove that he would never have been saved. Here's what I mean. If being one of the 12 disciples, being right next to Jesus Christ in the flesh as he preaches and raises the dead and gives sight to the blind, if that's not enough for you, nothing ever will be. It's clear that there's no scenario in which Judas is going to be saved. And so God used his foreknowledge of Judas's own free will decision to accomplish his divine purposes. And he did it all without compromising Judas's free will. Verse seven, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. There's a whole lot of detail we could get into about the timing of the days and what events happened on what day. And we'll probably do that again when the series picks up again, but for now we need to keep it moving. Verse eight, and he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And this didn't mean making a quick phone call. This wasn't like calling Passover takeout or something like that. Peter and John would need to take the lamb to be sacrificed at the temple and make preparations for a meal for 13 people. But Jesus himself had apparently made advance arrangements personally. And the owner of the upper room where they're gonna meet will take care of many of these details for them. The Passover meal was to be celebrated by families. So in eating the meal with his disciples, Jesus is making a statement that they were his family. Make a note of that. By eating the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus was making them out to be his family. His family. You know, it brings to mind Matthew 12. Let me just read it to you. Where it says, then one said to Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're my family. That includes Peter, who in just a few hours is gonna deny ever even knowing Jesus. He's gonna do it three times. It includes Thomas, who won't even believe that Jesus has actually risen from the dead despite the testimony of other disciples, until he touched Jesus' wounds with his own hands. And it includes Judas, the one who's gonna betray Jesus. But Jesus didn't say, man, now that I'm in this moment with you losers and doubters and betrayers, you jerks, I have to say, I'm glad this is the Last Supper because I'm beyond done with all of you. He doesn't say that, I would have, but he doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, he says, I've, I've been looking forward to this. We've got some important stuff to talk about. The, the whole reason I came to the earth is almost here. And guys, you have no idea the incredible things you're gonna be a part of in the coming years. And I'm so glad that I get to be with you in this moment. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've committed to living for God, then your family to Jesus, your family, your family. You know, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more clear my view of myself becomes. And my view of myself doesn't get higher with time, but rather I'm consistently astounded by my own sinfulness. And I'm consistently astounded by the amazing grace and love of Jesus. I'm astounded that when I come to the table of communion, the Lord doesn't say, back again, traitor, loser, promise breaker, hypocrite. No, instead, I, I find a God who says, I've been looking forward to fellowshipping with you again. I'm glad you're here. I'm in awe of the love Jesus has for me, for you, and for his disciples in this text. There, there really is no one like Jesus, and I can't get over the fact, I never will, that he would look at people like you and me, know everything about us, Know all the times that we would say to him, Lord, Lord, I'm sorry, this is it. This is the time I'm gonna change. I'm never gonna do this again. And then inevitably break our word. He would know every time we're gonna do that. He'd know every time we'd take him for granted. 
He'd know all the things that would take us years to learn that we should have learned in a week. He knew all of that, all of our failures. And he says, hey, let's eat together as family. I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to fellowshipping with you again. It's, there's not even an invented God that's like that. You can look among all the gods that people worship. There's, there's, nobody, there's nobody like Jesus. So write this down. Our communion with Jesus blesses him. Our communion with Jesus blesses him. Verse 9, so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Both Mark and Luke tell us they'd be able to identify the man because he's carrying a pitcher of water, which was a chore normally reserved for women, as it should be. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He was... Uh, <laughs> just a quick check-in that you're still awake. I'm waiting for a pine cone to come flying at my head. So he was, this guy was evidently someone that they didn't know, probably a servant who, uh, of whoever owned the house and whoever owned this upper room where the Passover meal was to be eaten. There's no indication that this was like a secret pre-planned signal and not like Jesus told the guy, hey, spend all day walking around with a jar of water on your head and that's how my disciples will know you're the guy. This is apparently just a demonstration of the power that Jesus had. The Holy Spirit told Jesus, hey, there's gonna be this guy, the guy Peter and John need to talk to, he's gonna be walking around right now carrying a pitcher of water. Many Bible scholars believe this upper room is actually owned by the mother of John Mark, the same Mark for whom the Gospel of Mark is named. It's most likely, this is really interesting, it's most likely that this upper room where they eat the Last Supper is the same upper room where the 70 gather in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the church is born and the Holy Spirit baptizes those 70 believers who are there praying. If you're not familiar with what we're talking about, you can read about it in Acts chapter 2. And I love that whoever arranged for the upper room to be available, whoever said yes, whoever got the table ready and things like that, they, they were just a behind the scenes person. They were clearly a follower of Jesus, but we never even learned their name. And yet God uses them to host the single most important meal that's ever been eaten in the history of the world. You who are serving in a way that seems to be unnamed or, or sometimes underappreciated, man, be encouraged because when you stand before the Lord, you'll be named and you'll be rewarded and you're gonna find you were a part of some things that were much bigger than you ever imagined. I'm pretty sure the guy who arranged the upper room for Jesus had no idea that a conversation would take place in that room that night that would be recorded and would fill half the gospel of John and would be cherished and loved and read by hundreds of millions of people across 2,000 years. He had no idea. The kingdom needs people who are willing to work behind the scenes for the glory of God rather than the praise of men. And I want you to know, I really want you to know, working behind the scenes, it's not a stepping stone to something greater. Working behind the scenes is vital and important work without which the kingdom doesn't function on the earth. It's incredibly important in and of itself. Don't ever forget that. If you feel like no one's seeing, no one's giving me a pat on the back, does this even matter? Does this even make a difference? Just ask this guy when you get to heaven. He'll tell you, yeah, it makes a difference. Verse 11, then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Verse 13, so, and then underline this phrase, they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. I love that phrase. They went and found it just as he has said to them. Do you know that's always true? Whatever Jesus says, you will always find it to be true. Always and without exception. Even when it seems unlikely, when it seems impossible, you will always find, as Peter and John did, things will be exactly the way Jesus said they would. And you can either embrace that reality and begin living in the blessings that come with doing life the way God designed it to be lived, or you can fight against the words of Jesus, rebel against the words of Jesus, and experience the curses that come from trying to make life work in a way that God didn't design it to. This is true in every area of life, in marriage, 
in work, in money, in recreation. However Jesus says things are, when Jesus says this is how marriage works, if he said it, you'll find it to be true. And either you'll look at that and say, man, praise God, I've got a plan to live by. I've got wisdom to live by. Or you'll say, no, no, I reject that. I'm gonna do it my own way. Whichever way you choose, you'll always find whatever Jesus says, that's how it is. So make a note of this. Things will always unfold exactly the way Jesus said they would. They'll always unfold exactly the way Jesus said they would. That's why we love prophecy so much is we can look in the Bible and see all these prophecies that have already come true, unfolded exactly the way Jesus said they would. And then we can look at prophecies that have to do with the future that haven't come to pass yet and we can say with confidence, here's what I know. It'll happen exactly the way Jesus said it would. That's the one thing I know. Verse 14, when the hour had come, this refers to sundown, which marked the start of Passover. Remember that in the Hebrew calendar, the day starts at sunset and continues to sunset the next day. So when evening comes, that's the beginning of the new day. The day goes from dark to light. When the sun, when the hour had come, he sat down, he reclined, and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, I just, I just love the character of Jesus. He's saying, I know I'm about to go suffer, but I've been looking forward to this moment, to being with you guys, to sharing with you guys, ministering to you guys, investing, pouring into you guys. I've been looking forward to this. Verse 16, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it. I'll no longer eat of the Passover meal until it is, and then underline this phrase, fulfilled in the kingdom of God, fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. He's talking about wine. I won't drink wine. And then underline this phrase, until the kingdom of God comes. Are you picking up that Jesus seems to be implying that he's pushing the pause button on his celebration of the Passover cedar, the Passover meal. He's saying, I'm, I'm pushing pause. I'm not gonna eat any more of this. I'm not gonna drink any more of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and until the kingdom of God comes. Well, what does that mean? Let's see if we can clear this up a bit. This is my personal view, putting the pieces together and you can listen to it and come to your own conclusions. The Passover cedar, as we said, is the name of the Jewish meal. And one of the things that Jewish families did back then and still do today is at the Passover cedar, they would recount the story of how the Lord brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They'll tell it in a way that their kids can hear it and enjoy it and be blessed by it. And one of the things they do is they read through four I will statements that are made by God in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. I think I put it on your outline. He's giving a promise to Israel that he's going to save them from slavery in Egypt. And these four I will statements are actually four stages that also represent the work that God does in the life of every single believer. After each statement was read, each I will statement was read, they would pass around a cup of wine and everybody would take a drink from the same cup of wine. Each cup corresponded to one of these I will statements. They still do this in the Passover cedar. And they would always drink them in a specific order that lined up with the scriptures. First they would read, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And this would be called the cup of sanctification. This was God's promise, I'm gonna get you out of Egypt. To the believer, it's the promise that I'm gonna save you from sin. I'm gonna pull you out of the world where you are controlled by sin. Second, they would read, I will rescue you from their bondage. And this would be called the cup of deliverance. And this was a big deal because even though Israel would be brought out of Egypt, Israel would still need to have Egypt brought out of them. You know, sometimes you move places geographically, but you've still got all the effect of the place that you've been living for a long time affecting you on the inside. You get saved, you give your life to Jesus. Yes, you're a new being, but you've been controlled by the world and by sin for a long time, and it takes time. Even though God got you out of the world, it takes time for God to get the world out of you. And that was the cup of deliverance. Third, they would read, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm 
and with great judgments. This would be called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. This was God's promise to say, I'll redeem you, which means I'll pay whatever price is necessary to make you my own. Whatever price is necessary to free you from physical, mental, and spiritual slavery, owing a debt to nobody, I'm gonna set you free, I'm gonna pay the price. And the parallel is obvious for you and I that Jesus came to pay the price that we would cost to be set free spiritually, emotionally, ultimately physically, in every sense of the word. He paid that price. And then fourth, the last cup, they would read, I will take you as my people and I would be your God. And this was called the cup of praise because how many of you know if you're on your fourth cup of wine, you're gonna be praising one way or another. You see, this was God's promise when he says, I'm going to take you. It was his promise to literally take his people to where he was. I'm gonna bring you to where I am. I'm gonna be your God. We're gonna be together literally. That was the fourth cup, the cup of praise. What meal, what feast is Jesus eating here at the Last Supper? He's eating the Passover cedar. So check out what happens next in verses 19 through 20. Jesus is gonna lead his disciples in taking communion. He's gonna teach them communion. Verse 19 it says, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And in case we're not tracking what happens next. Paul clears it up for us in 1 Corinthians 10. I put this on your outline. Paul writes, the cup of blessing, underline that, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, underlining communion of the blood of Christ? So Paul is telling us that right here, Luke 22, when Jesus is using the cup of wine in the Passover cedar to teach his disciples communion, it was the cup of blessing that he was using when he gave them the sacrament of communion, which is the third cup of the Passover cedar. So we know they got all the way up to the third cup. There's no mention anywhere of the fourth cup, the cup of praise. But what we do have is we have Jesus talking about pausing this Passover meal, quote, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and until the kingdom of God comes. So the only thing left to pause in this Passover cedar, the Last Supper, is the fourth cup, the cup of praise. That's the only thing left to do that's left undone. Most Bible scholars agree, and so do I, that this Passover cedar is going to be unpaused and completed when Jesus raises that fourth cup and drinks from it at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When his church and his people are gathered together around him in Zion, in Jerusalem, and he begins to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years at the beginning of the millennium. Every time I share that, I barely get through it emotionally. And I don't even know why conceptually, but there's, there's just something about that future moment, marriage supper of the Lamb, that is just, it's everything we long for coming together in one moment. It's Jesus it's his church, it's the world made right, it's Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, it's us in resurrected bodies, it's the end of sadness and misery, it, it, it's just everything. It's when we're gonna truly celebrate, we are his people, he is our God, and we're, we're inseparably together, literally forever. What a moment that's gonna be. From the time a date was set for a Jewish wedding, the groom wouldn't allow wine to touch his lips until he was joined with his bride. And so too, Jesus has left the last cup of wine of the Passover cedar, the cup of praise, untouched to be drunk when he and his bride, the church, celebrate being joined together forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's incredible. When we pick up this series again, we're gonna revisit this and talk some more about the importance of communion. But I do wanna say just a couple of quick things about communion. You know, Jesus only gave the church two sacraments, only two. He asked us to observe and do baptism and communion. That was it, these are the ones from Jesus. And in light of that, I hope you'll take both extremely seriously and I hope you celebrate both. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, you, you need to be. Not sometime this coming summer. We got people with hot tubs, you need to get this done now. 
If this is you, for, for real, if this is you, let me encourage you on the positive side because it's wonderful. And let me be serious over here and say, you're not doing what God has asked you to do if you haven't done it. You need to be baptized. And then even today, you're going to have a chance to take communion. The elements are available in the back for you to take in this coming time of prayer and worship. Do it. Do it. Don't take it for granted. We put it out every week because if you actually read what the word says, the reasons we're told to take communion are needed every week. When you read the reasons, these are not things that we only need to do once a month or once every few months. These are the three reasons the Bible gives us for communion. We heard one from Jesus and Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 11. The first reason is simple. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We take communion to remember Jesus. That church and the Christian life is not about the songs we sing or the programs our kids go to or the friends we have and get to hang out with. That This is ultimately about Jesus first and foremost. Secondly, Paul also says in that same chapter, it's to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Man, a great way to tick off Christians is to just point out the fact, hey, you know we're never actually told to celebrate Christmas, right? You know that's not actually in the Bible anywhere. We're not actually told to celebrate it. We are told to celebrate the death of Jesus because the birth of Jesus didn't actually do anything for us. If he had come and lived and just gone back to heaven, it basically would have just meant him saying, see, you can live a perfect life. Have fun with that. We'd still be dead. We'd still have a problem. The death of Jesus is what makes it possible for us to be forgiven. So we're told to remember his death, not once a year on Easter, but all the time until he comes, it says, to stay grateful. You know, anytime you begin feeling angry at Jesus, bitter at Jesus, like he's not done enough for you, you've inevitably forgotten what he's done for you. Communion is the antidote for that. Remember his death. And then thirdly, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The point is this, we take communion for the purpose of unity as well. To remember that no matter how different we are, no matter how many different places we are in our walk with the Lord, no matter what we're struggling with or thriving with right now, the thing that brings us all together is we all need Jesus. Whether we've been walking with him like rock stars for 40 years or whether it's year two and we're struggling, we all need Jesus. It's the one thing we all have in common. We need Jesus and we need his forgiveness. To remember him, to celebrate his death, and to be unified together. Those are things we need to do all the time. So make sure you take communion today. I'm going to wrap up with this. In the middle of the Christmas season, I hope you'll remember why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Why we love him so much. Why we celebrate him. As John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus approaching at the Jordan River, we echo those same words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to take away your sin and my sin and die in our place. And then make sure you take communion today. I want you to know he's been looking forward to fellowshipping with you. He's been looking forward to it. I can't explain to you why. I don't know why he would look forward to fellowshipping with me all the ways I've disappointed him. I don't know why. The closest I can get is because he's made me and he's made you family. He's made you family. And I don't love my kids because of anything they do. I love them because they're my kids. Jesus has made us sons and daughters of the Father. And he doesn't love us because of anything we do. He loves us because of who we are to him. We're his sons, we're his daughters, we're brothers and sisters to Jesus. And that's the basis we get to approach him on. Not based on how we did this week, but based on the fact that we're, we're family. And he's redeemed us. He's paid the price for us. So make sure that as you go take communion, you remember he's looking forward to fellowshipping with you. He's looking forward to it. He loves you so much. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your incredible and unfailing and unexplainable love, Lord. It is so good, it is so generous, it is so kind, it is so gracious, it is just so vast in its scope. And Lord, we're so thankful for the fact that you've covered every single one of our sins. 
You've paid the price that you had to pay for us and you've brought us into your family, Lord. Thank you for doing that. And Father, we just want to pray in the middle of this Christmas season for all those that you've put in our lives who don't know you, Lord, who are spending their life pursuing worthless things, never knowing the peace of being forgiven by you, being loved by you. Father, we want that for them and we're praying that you would save them, that you would draw them to yourself, give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and give us the boldness, Lord, to, to share you with them. Just bring people across our paths this week and just give us chances to invite them to just hear about you. Father, we just love you for the way that you love us. We love you because you loved us first. While we were dead in our sins, you died for us, Lord. You didn't wait for us to change, but you changed us. You changed us. You made us sons and daughters of your Father. Thank you for doing that, God. Help us to approach you the way that you've shown us in your word, expecting a God who's eager to meet with us, who's been looking forward to meeting with us, Lord. So help us just to do that simply and with gratitude in this coming time of prayer and worship, Father. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.